Many of you know that uh, Julian and I and my 15-year-old daughter Savannah were away for 16 days and have just returned on Tuesday from a trip overseas. And I just wanted to begin by saying thank you for being a church that supports the missions of God, the mission of God around the globe. It's a tremendous privilege to uh, be a part of a community that has for over two centuries cared about God's work, not just in Boston, but around the world. And, and honestly, coming off of that trip, just seeing the, the tremendous needs uh, that there are. We heard a testimony about that already today. And um, just so much need uh, in the parts of the world that we were in for the gospel to be proclaimed. So thank you for supporting Global Missions. Thank you for supporting our particular missionaries. I was really blessed to spend time with several of our missionaries. We were in uh, Turkey and Egypt and in Kenya uh, on this trip and getting to see some who are newer to the field, some who have been on the field maybe 10 years, and some, uh, one uh, who had been on the field, Carolyn, that many of you know, on the field for 33 years. And just uh, want to say we have sent out some great people to do this work, and we are supporting wonderful people who will bear fruit, many who have already borne fruit for decades, and some who I think will bear fruit for many decades to come and, and do a tremendous job in representing Jesus in places of the world where the darkness is, is quite strong. I want to say thank you for sending me and for praying for, for Julian and Savannah and me. There were a number of missionaries, not our own, that we met on the field who said, I can't believe that two pastors from a church have come out to visit your people. That says a lot about your church. Uh, and so just to encourage you that this is a church that understands and prioritizes the work of mission, I'm, I'm grateful for your prayers. One uh, just quick thing, I, I thought I'd share a story from uh, the trip. I hope that we'll have a formal time to share more reflections on the trip. But uh, we were gathered with a group of Christians in Cairo who were from different organizations and churches that were um, part of a new thing, a new initiative to help the church in Egypt become a sending church. And so these were organizations and churches gathered together, uh, representatives from, from probably 25 different organizations and churches, uh, packed into a room. There were about 40 people in the room. And this woman stood up. She was in her 60s. Her name was Ingrid. And she was from Germany. And she and her husband had been missionaries in the southern part of Egypt for 33 years. And then two years ago, her husband dropped dead of a heart attack. And he was a beloved missionary in Egypt. He had actually been a part of the leadership team to bring this new organization to life, had such a heart to see the church in Egypt develop to be a sending church. And it was incredibly moving to listen to her testimony uh, of saying, you know, to, in, in bereavement as a widow and of just affirming the goodness of God in her life and saying he's worth it and she said you know I got my calling to be a missionary before I met Gerald my husband and that calling remains now after he is gone and I'm going to continue to serve him with all of my life and effort and heart, heart back in Germany helping to send workers to the field and it was just a powerful witness I mean I think both Julian and I had kind of tears in our eyes as we were listening to her testimony and just a call to faithfulness to faithfulness to Jesus from a woman who had spent her life on the field. And, and then she, she shared some reflections from her husband. And I have it in front of me. She actually brought a few copies, and so I got one. This is in English, and this is the back in Arabic. Um, who, from remarks that he had shared to alumni from the theological school that he had studied at in Germany just two months before he died. And I just thought, I'd, this doesn't have a lot to do, well, it all has to do with what I'm talking about. Anytime we open the Bible, these things make sense. But... Um, the, they asked the question, what would you like the alumni to take away after your many years in ministry? So the people that he was addressing just two months before, he didn't, he didn't know he was going to die. But I thought his testimony, and he had 
So many people said amazing things about his leadership. He had done discipleship and evangelism. He had translated the Bible into the local dialect in southern Egypt. Uh, was a well, clearly a just tremendously respected leader among the workers in that nation. And this is what he said. I just wanted to bring it to you as a little taste of so many things that we got to hear while we were away. He said, there's so many things I'd want people to take away. And then he lists off a number. Live holy lives pleasing to God. Do not neglect your family or your marriage and your family. Do not sacrifice your family in service, but sacrifice as a family in service to Jesus. Your being must always be more important than your doing. Do not settle down on a good middle-class Christian plateau, but be ready for spiritual maturing and growth. Never stop being students of the word. Have a wide heart for local cooperation with Christians of other stripes, and at the same time promote Jesus' global enterprise so that all people groups are reached with the gospel. And then his final words were, God bless you. So I offer that to you as an exhortation from a man who's gone home to be with the Lord and who now sees face to face from a man who gave his life to serving God on the mission field and it was a life well spent, a life well lived. Let's pray as we come to God's word. God, we thank you. Thank you that you love us and thank you for this amazing love that you've called us to go out and to share with the world. We thank you, Lord, for the missionaries that you've allowed us to know and to support who are doing that work in places where there are so few who know you, so many under the grips of a, a way of thinking and relating to who they think is God that is not freedom and liberation in life, but is bondage. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for calling us to participate in this work. And thank you that we enjoy fellowship with you and that we have been given words from you that speak and move and change us. And we pray as we open up your word this morning that you would do that work again, that you'd form us to be like your son Jesus, that you would empower us by the spirit to go out from this place into the city and beyond to proclaim the name of Jesus in our words and our deeds. We pray this in his name and we pray it for his glory. Amen. We're continuing this morning with our, our series on being a healthy community of love and the goal here is that we would grow into greater and greater degrees of health as a church family, knowing that there's always more room to grow. And one thing, another observation from my time away is in just witnessing uh, and hearing repeatedly and repeatedly on our trip to these three countries in conversations with so many Christian workers and believers is the fact that conflict with other Christians is kind of a universal language. <laughs> This is something that, that anyone and everyone experiences. And we heard story after story of people on the field about challenges and conflicts with other believers. In fact, Gerald, who I read from, uh, who's passed away, but you know, he, he was asked, what are his difficult moments in ministry? And he said, it affected me greatly that during a certain phase of ministry, a small part of the German staff in the southern part of Egypt thought I should give up team leadership and leave the team. And so he had had that experience as well. And so many have. This is a challenge. The things that we're working on in this series, and they're a challenge to all of us, they're a challenge for everybody everywhere. Every Christian everywhere deals with these kinds of things because we're all people and we all wrestle with sin. And so this is a universal struggle for us. But it's so worthwhile to dig into these things together. It's so worthwhile for us to do this here at Park Street. And it's worthwhile for our brothers and sisters around the globe as well. So let me recap where we've been. We've talked about the kinds of people 
that both enable and sustain healthy Christian churches or communities. And there were two observations that we made. The first was, and this is the foundation, this is the beginning, that we are loved by God, loved by Jesus, that we are beloved. We sang, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus already this morning. I love that hymn. But it is the love of God for us that is the foundation and the bedrock of any healthy church, any healthy follower of Jesus. We have to begin there. We can never get beyond there. We never graduate from there. We, we are to be rooted and grounded in love, Paul says in Ephesians 3. So this is the first thing. And I just ask you again, do you know this morning that you are loved by Jesus, that he, the son of God, gave himself up for you, that he loves you? That's the foundation. The second observation about the kinds of people was really that we see the log in our own eye. We looked at Matthew chapter 7, but this idea that we are, in fact, though we're deeply loved, and the fact that we're deeply loved enables us to make this observation about ourselves, but we're sinners. We are flawed. We are broken. We all have a lot of room to grow from immaturity to maturity. The, the goalpost is still a long ways off. And we can acknowledge that as the followers of Jesus because we're loved, that we are, in fact, broken people who sin against one another and against God, and that we have a mentality of the log in our own eye, so that when we approach each other in relationships, we don't do so from above, but always from alongside or even from below, because we know that though we're deeply loved, we are also uh, sinners who have been rescued by a God who are not worthy of his rescue. And so those are the two foundational planks of the kinds of people that enable and sustain healthy communities. And then we've begun to look at some of the practices that that those kinds of people take up together. And we, we talked about the priority of right relationships. Remember about leaving your gift at the altar for Matthew 5 and going and being reconciled with your brother, that this is something that deeply mattered to Jesus, that we would be walking together in right relationship, reconciled with one another. And so again, I'll throw that out. If there are people around us that you're not reconciled with, then make that a top priority because it matters to Jesus, it matters to his church. Then two weeks ago, Damien preached on the, the call of forgiveness out of Matthew 18, that we are a people who practice this radical life of forgiveness, and that changes what's possible in our relationships and in our community, how central that is to the people of God. We have been forgiven, and so we forgive. Then last week, Michael led us in a study on Galatians 6 and the idea of bearing one another's burdens, that your burdens and your weaknesses are opportunities for the rest of us to come to know Jesus more deeply. They are not drains upon our time, but it's a countercultural way of thinking about each other's weaknesses and the burdens that we have, whether because of sin or because of affliction, that there are opportunities for us to step in and grow to become more like Jesus. That are we eager to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ? This marks a healthy community is when we actually say, no, you, my burdens are, are your problem and your burdens are my problem. Not problem, but opportunity to grow and to mature together. So this week, we're, we're coming to Romans chapter 15 to add to these practices. And we'll see two additional practices here in our text. I invite you to open to Romans 15 with me. And they are t I'll, I'll state them now. The, the first is not pleasing ourselves, but pleasing our neighbor. We find this in verses 1 and 2. And the second practice is in verse 7, welcoming one another. So these, these are the two practices. And we'll come back to them in a moment. But first, I want to take a look at the context in which Paul gives these exhortations to the church. And this context, making three observations about the context, kind of in three concentric circles, starting with the more immediate context, then the broader context, and then the broadest context of all. So I want to make some comments about context before we take a look at those exhortations more specifically. So the first is that Paul is giving these exhortations 
in the context of a community that's facing difference and disagreement. Difference and disagreement over substantial matters from their perspective. So our text, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 15, is a kind of wrap-up to what Paul is doing in chapter 14 in this section of Romans. And in that chapter, he talks about or he addresses the two groups in the church in Rome. He calls them the strong and the weak. And so in verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, the one, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So these two groups, they have differences of opinion over the ongoing validity of the Jewish law for the Christian believer. And we know, obviously, from the rest of the New Testament that this was a, a struggle for churches around the, in the early church. They were wrestling, well, how do we relate to the revelation of God and the Torah and the law now that Christ has come and we're living a, a life in the Spirit? And that was a hard question for the church to hammer out in those early decades together. And clearly, there were some issues around particularly two things Paul mentions in chapter 14. Food, one group ate meat, the other group, Paul says, ate only vegetables. So this is likely around kosher laws and what it was permissible for believers and the God of Israel to eat together. And the second was around the observance of days, of special days, likely the Jewish feast calendar and the feast days, possibly also the Sabbath day, we're not sure. But these were things that they were wrestling with in the community. And Paul basically said, he calls them the strong and the weak. We, we kind of think of that and like, well, that, that seems a bit odd. Why don't you just call them group A and group B? Um, but he gives a little value here because for Paul, the, the, the explosive reality of the grace of God in the gospel is that God welcomes us into his family in Christ without regard to our level of expertise on the Jewish law or for that matter, any other system of human merit or worth. And it's that, that's the reality. That's ex we looked at this in our first message on this series in Galatians 2 on justification by faith, but that's the reality that Paul knows. And so Paul understands, as a mature believer, he counts himself among those who are in the, the strong category, that really there's freedom, tremendous freedom, because of how God has worked in the gospel to receive us in his son without any regard to who we were relative to the Jewish law. And so he does actually think that he would like to see the weak probably progress to a position of the strong to understand the depth of God's grace. Um, so there is a kind of value there for him. But actually what he, what he says in Romans 14, he doesn't say, well, just beat those people over the head so they can get to the strong side. He actually says, I want you to live meekly and humbly with them. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But that's, a, that, that's the context of, 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 of the immediate context of this text. Uh, and these two groups, they're, they're, the potential for them to dislike one another is pretty severe. If you look at verse 3 in chapter 14, let not the one who eats that's the strong one, despise the one who abstains. So it's possible the strong could look down on the weak and despise them, and you don't really get it. And then he says, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. That is, the, the weak might look at the strong and go, look, you're making all kinds of mistakes that you shouldn't be making and sins, and we pass judgment on you. And so there's all this room for these disagreements over what they would see as substantial matters to destroy their relationships with one another. Well, we don't wrestle with the same issue today, do we? We don't really wrestle and debate over how the Jewish law applies to the Christian church today in the same way that they would have in these early decades of the church. Um, but we likely still have matters where we divide into the strong and the weak and we're tempted to look down on or disdain or judge others in the community. Uh, in his study on this section of Romans, James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for a long time, he died in the year 2000, 
he mentioned four areas that he thought were you could still see this kind of strong weak divide going on in the present church i thought i'd pass them along uh, he says you know one is when another christian is going through hard times like a divorce or having rebellious children or challenges at work there's the possibility that those who aren't going through those difficulties kind of look at them and go well there must be something wrong with them for going through that and they begin to kind of feel superior and judge them for walking through their struggles which obviously is not a christian way to respond to somebody's struggles but it can happen a second thing he points out is variations in individual piety and we we get this right there are people who really pray and then there are the rest of us and there are people who really study and know their bible and then they're the, so we, we you know kind of these dimensions of well you know what are your practices like and and then there's a kind of stratification of the community between the strong and the weak that can impact even marriages of course there are he thirdly mentions denominational affiliations you know like it's too bad all those baptists and and uh presbyterians out there aren't congregationalists like us or you know the, the, just the sense that the, the particular flavor and stripe of, that i'm a part of is the way and we can begin to look down on others and fourthly boyce mentions personality differences where we think that everyone has to be more like us you know the way that we are particularly wired is serious and zealous or humorous and light or whatever it might be and we can look down on others who don't seem to be made like we're made you know, boyce tells the story of spurgeon he says a young man asked spurgeon what he would what he should do about a box of cigars that he had been given and Spurgeon solved his problem. Give them to me, he said. I will smoke them to the glory of God. <laughs> Taught that young man a lesson. I hope no teenagers were listening just then. Um, but there are these differences in circumstances and piety and emphasis and personality. And they permeate the church. And they can be the occasion for judgment between one another and disdain. And so this is still a reality. So the first context is the context of difference and disagreement let's go to the the next wider circle and look at the broader section which is romans 12 really through 15 and 16 even and see does how does what's the context for all of paul's instruction and it's these these wonderful words in romans 12 verses 1 and 2 many of you know these words well i appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect that is to say that the the broader context of Paul's exhortations in chapter 15 are the reality of this vertical relationship that we have with the living God based upon his mercy and grace to us expressed in Jesus I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God and that relationship with God is a relationship in which we have been completely surrendered. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. We've offered all that we are up to him, holding nothing back. We've laid ourselves on the altar as an act of sacrifice. And then in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we've offered ourselves up, and now we've been given the mind of Christ so that you can discern what? the will of God and walk in that will not your own will what's the competition with God's will it's always our self-will and so Paul is saying in response to the amazing grace of God that you are to lay yourself on the altar before him completely surrendered that you might know his will and walk in that will that's that's the slightly larger context of what Paul is about to exhort them to 
And it is to say that we can't be in right relation with one another. We can't have healthy communities in the church or among Christian believers if there's not a genuine right relationship with the living God. This vertical relationship begins to inform. And I think if you study Romans 12 through 15, you see that these two verses in Romans 12, to open this section, they color and shape the entirety of what Paul is saying here. They're all manifestations of that. So we need to see that context here and recognize that this is central in what he's about to say. And then the third, the larger of the three circles, the broadest context is really just the gospel of God, which we began when we looked at Romans 1, however long ago, we we did a series on the gospel of God. But just this fact that the, the gospel of God is actually forming a unified people in Jesus. And it's this ministry of reconciliation that produces a people from every tribe and tongue and peoples and nations that we talk, we hear about in Revelation 7 that gather together around the throne of God to praise his name for all eternity. That ministry of reconciliation, the dividing wall of hostility that's broken down between Jew and Gentile that Paul writes about in Ephesians 2. It's that bringing together of a new family in Jesus that is the broadest context of what Paul is exhorting the church in Rome to in chapter 15. That God is doing a new thing and that Jesus is the kind of leader that brings together people who are different and who do disagree, but nonetheless unites us in himself and brings us into his body under his lordship. And this is an amazing reality. And Paul erupts in verses 5 and 6 of Romans 15 with a prayer that this would be the case in Rome If you look with me at the text, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus prays for the night before he's crucified in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? He prays that all of us would be one as he and the Father are one. Why? So that the world might know, O Father, that you have sent me, he says. Something about the church being unified that's so central to the reality of the gospel and to the witness of the church, to the glory of Jesus, that this is what Paul longs for, for the church in Rome. Churches today are more than ever tempted to divide along political lines, ideological lines, ethnic lines, doctrinal lines, denominational lines, or even just to divide because we've had disagreements over strategy or finances, or maybe even masks and how to handle the pandemic. We live in a highly polarized society. And we are to be a counterexample and witness to the world that is polarized around us, that there is a king whose name is Jesus and he has power to hold us together. So that's the broadest context. Now let's move then and transition to Paul's exhortations in in our text. And uh, I do want to say it's quite simple, really, what Paul is saying here to the church in Rome. He's saying, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. I know many of you in Lent during in the the LDI program are receiving daily emails from the 15th century classic by Thomas Akempis, which is titled The Imitation of Christ. And that title gets it right. Because that is the goal of Christian discipleship. It's that simple and that profound and deep that we have been called as redeemed image bearers of God. We've been brought in, adopted, made family family members of, of the family of God 
Our goal is to become like Jesus. And what Paul says to the church here with these two exhortations is essentially that. It's just a different way of doing it. But he says to the church in Rome, be like Jesus. And he says that to us today. So the first exhortation in verse 1 and 2, uh, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So the first ex exhortation negatively is not to please ourselves, but to please others. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, who of us doesn't want to please ourselves? <laughs> it is hardwired in us to be oriented to our own wants and needs and desires. And we are all kind of focused on meeting our own uh, needs and getting what we want. But Paul exhorts us to a different way. Because a life that is submitted to God, a life that's been offered up as a living sacrifice, a life that's discerning the pleasing and good and perfect will of God, is a life that is lived not for ourselves, not to please ourselves, but to please our neighbor. And in that way, we are being rewired by the Spirit of God to become more and more like Jesus. And this is the way of love, the orientation to pleasing our neighbor. Look at what that's for, verse 2. It's for his good, we read, to build him up. This winter, I, and during the winter, I regularly drive Claire, our youngest, down to Park Street School in the city, and we're driving on Columbus Avenue, and we go by the police headquarters on Columbus for the city, and just on the other side of, the, of Columbus Avenue, there are some apartment buildings. And this winter, as we were driving by, we, we saw them doing demolition, literally tearing down these buildings. There was this giant crane-like thing with a big hook on the end. And, and as we would drive by, we'd, we'd watch this thing just swing and hit a brick wall and just knock it over like it was just a, a stack of cards. And it was, it was impressed upon me as we saw this happen over the progress of a couple of weeks. And, there would be, you know, firefighters out with big hoses kind of keeping the dust down. But it just, it was impressed upon me how much easier it is to, to demolish things than to build things up. In an instant, I mean, we've seen the awful gut-wrenching images about the war in Ukraine, about how things are being demolished that have taken decades to build. It is so much easier to demolish than to build. And Paul's call is to the church here is to please your neighbor for his good, to build him up. To build requires planning and preparation and measuring and cutting and sanding and all of the hard work of putting a structure together. To demolish is just, it's easy to do. Most often I'm, I fear that we do it with our words and that will be the subject of our time together next week about taming the tongue as a dimension of a healthy Christian community. But it's so easy for us to tear down rather than to build up. And Paul says, look, if you please yourself, that's exactly what you're doing as he's talking to the strong and the weak in Rome. And so verse 15 of chapter 14, if you want to look back with me, he says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't live in your liberty, oh, you strong people. And so squelch or just, just knock over. The person for whom Christ died, yeah, maybe he is weak or she is weak, but Paul says they're part of the family. Christ died for that person. Don't demolish them, but seek their good. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Don't do that demolition work. 
because you just want to live in your freedom. But curb your freedoms so that you might please your neighbor and build him or her up. Paul grounds his exhortation in verses 1 and 2 and verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ is our example. That's why I say he's saying be like Jesus. But Christ did not please himself. You remember the night before he was crucified in the Gethsemane Garden when he was crying out to God. You remember what he said in his humanity. If he had pleased himself, what would he have done? He would have walked away from what he was about to encounter. And he prayed to his father, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Let it pass from me. I don't want this. This wouldn't please me in one sense. I mean, who would want to encounter the mocking, the betrayal, the insults, the beatings, and then the shameful, humiliating death of being hung up on a cross and being dehumanized before everyone who could watch and come by? But Paul says Christ didn't please himself. Thanks be to God. Instead, he gave himself for us. He gave his life for us. And Paul is saying, I want you to be like Jesus in this way. Remember, Jesus says that the one who loses his life for his sake and for the gospel, that's the one who really saves it. That's the one who finds life. Jesus is saying that the one who who walks on this path of the cross with me, that's the one who comes to know genuine life. And that's a path of self-denial. That's a path of taking up your cross and following me. It's a different path. It's a path of pleasing your neighbor for his good and not, not pleasing yourself. Aren't we so grateful to God that Jesus didn't please himself, but for our sakes, he died and was raised again? that we might live to him. It's an amazing gift that Jesus has given us by pouring out his life on our behalf. And Paul is simply calling us here to follow in his example as we relate to one another in a context of difference and division to relate to one another in this way, to please our neighbor. Now, it sounds grandiose when we talk about it in the terms of Jesus's life, and it is. It was literally altered the cosmos, what God did in, in his son. But more often than not, this not pleasing ourselves, but pleasing our neighbors is is practiced in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the everyday realities of life. In giving up our time, our money, our energy to pursue the good of our brother or sister, and so on. And Paul cites the Old Testament here in verse 3. He cites Psalm 69 and Just briefly, what he means in citing this is this is a psalm about the suffering and righteous Israelite who is vindicated by God. Seven of the 36 verses of Psalm 69 are quoted directly in the New Testament. This was a psalm that speaks of the Messiah to the earliest church. They understood these words were about Jesus. And I would encourage you this week at some point to slowly read through and pray through Psalm 69 as a meditation upon this idea of not pleasing oneself but of pleasing our neighbor. And then Paul continues having cited this psalm for whatever was written in verse 4. In former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. What does he mean? He, He cited scripture as a kind of defense of his citation of Jesus as the foundation for this exhortation. And basically what I think Paul is doing here is he's saying to us, look, to genuinely live this way, to walk this path, to please others and not yourself, to take up your cross with Jesus, that's a hard path to walk. 
Remember, narrow is the gate and hard is the way, Jesus says, that leads to life. It's not easy on our flesh. It's hard for us to do this day in and day out, to look at the people around this sanctuary and say, I'm living for you. I'm wanting to put your interests first above my own. And as you walk that road, you will encounter the challenges and difficulties of the kind of little micro versions of suffering that take place every time we pour our life out for the sake of another person. Every time we give up our preference to prefer what somebody else wants. Every time that we put ourselves second, not first. And I think what Paul is saying about scripture is that it provides us through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What he's saying is, open up your text. And he means, of course, by scripture, the Old Testament. We would add to that the apostolic writings of the New Testament and treat them in the same way. But open up the Bible, he says. And there you will find that God is always faithful to his people. That God never stops being faithful. That God always vindicates those who walk with him in righteousness and holiness. Who live the life that he's called us to live. God always prevails. And as you live this cross-shaped life in community together. Seeking not your own interests but the interests of others. Seeking to please your neighbor. It will be hard. But I promise you, Paul is saying, as you open up the Bible day in and day out. As you study God's word. Remember Gerald the missionary said continue to be a student of his word, that you will be encouraged in the faithfulness of God to his people. You will be encouraged to continue to live that way, even when it doesn't seem to make sense, even when it doesn't seem to pay off, even when it seems too hard for your flesh. You'll be encouraged every time you open up God's word to have hope as you live this way for others. It's a tremendous encouragement. So take up the scriptures and read them. All right, more briefly, and coming to a close, the, um, the second exhortation after this amazing prayer that we already looked at in verses 5 and 6. And I, I think this is the, fair enough, this is the, this is the conclusion, this is the climax, this is the exclamation point in the letter to the church in Rome. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Welcome is not a tame word. It's a word that has dynamite in it. It's a word that implies all kinds of realities of embracing your Christian brother or sister. How has Christ welcomed us? Because that's what Paul says. Welcome one another as, again here, be like Jesus, as Christ has welcomed you. Christ has embraced you. He has washed you. He has cleansed you. He has loved you. He has forgiven you. He's come alongside of you. He's welcomed you into his body by his love. And this is the way we are to welcome one another. One biblical example or illustration is the book of Philemon, this short little book where Paul's writing to Philemon to welcome back Onesimus, his former slave. And he says in verse 17, Philemon, if you, were, if you consider me your partner, welcome him it's the same word welcome or receive him as you would welcome or receive me in the verse prior to that he says you know you will receive him back not as a slave but as a brother the gospel has transformed your relationship with Onesimus Philemon in such a way that now you are to welcome him back into your very family into your very heart as your brother in Christ that's what it means to welcome. It means to look around this room and to say to everyone, even the people that you don't like, especially them, you are welcome in my life. And I trust I'm welcome in yours because we are one in Jesus. This is what it means to become a healthy community. It is to extend the embrace. And this is what Damien preached about two weeks ago. But look, 
whatever it takes for you to get over to welcome them, God had to get over exponentially more. That's the debt that you could never repay, right? To welcome you. God has set the example in his welcome of us. We then are to extend that welcome to one another. This is so central and why? And it's because of the last words of our text. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? Why? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. God's glory is at stake. From Paul's perspective, and I would argue from the rest of the New Testament's perspective, his glory is at stake in how his people relate to one another. That is to say, it would have been much easier in Rome in the first century for there to have been a church of the strong on one street corner, and they would have had barbecues every day enjoying their meat. And the church of the weak on another street corner, and they would have had some kind of vegetarian feast, no offense to the vegetarians, but a vegetarian feast, you know, once every couple of weeks on a special day. And they would have been much easier, but much easier to just get along, right? Just in your echo chamber with the people who think like you. Yeah, we know they love Jesus down the street, but we do it our way here. And they could have said the same thing on the other side. It's so much easier to do that. And the Apostle Paul writes this incredible letter to tell them, no, no, you can't do that. You can't be separate. You must be together. You must live with one another in love for one another. You must please the other person and not yourself. You must welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you because the glory of God is at stake in how the church loves one another and how the church operates in life together. And now I know 2,000 years later, it's very complicated. There are churches all over the place in this city. But I want you to know this. There is only one church in Boston. Only one. I know there are Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant. I know that it's messy. There are 40,000 denominations in Protestantism. I understand all of that. And I don't really know what to do about it. And neither do any of you. <laughs> but I do know this. I do know that in God, from God's perspective, there is only one church. There's only one Jesus, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so let us take the exhortations of Paul to the church in Rome and apply them first in our own community at Park Street Church that we might please the other, that we might welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. And then let us spill over to those around us in a way that em embraces them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. I recognize there's a lot of challenges in that, but that's our calling. Why? Why do we care? Why would we work hard at that? Why does Paul exhort the church in this way? Because God's glory is at stake in how we do this. Because to be prideful and smug and of the strong and to disdain the weak is an antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's antithetical to having been beloved by Jesus. It's antithetical to having known the log in our own eye that has been removed before we look at the speck in our brother's eye. No, this is foundational to Paul. It's foundational to the glory of God in the world around us that we would do this work together, pleasing our neighbor and welcoming one another as we've been welcomed. This is what it's about. This is the pathway, I believe, to being a healthy church, these two exhortations here, and to growing to become more and more like Jesus. May we walk down this road by the grace of God, by the power of his spirit. But let's apply this practically. There are a lot of ways to apply this practically in our lives, even this week with one another. And then it will spill out over into the lives of others as we do this together 
to the broader world around us. I'll close with this final story. Just a woman in our church emailed me a few weeks ago, and she gave this great testimony about how our care for one another was flowing over even to her non-Christian neighbors. She walks her neighborhood regularly, and she'll often connect with her neighbors who aren't Christians and ask them how she can pray. And they'll tell her things. And one neighbor got a diagnosis, and it was pretty grim. And so she went back to her Park Street small group and said, hey, do you guys think we could make meals for this neighbor of mine? And so regularly for several days over a few weeks, she would bring um, a fresh meal to this neighbor. And the neighbor was just overwhelmed. Overwhelmed to see the, the sense of a community that would care for one another in this way and then let that care for one another begin to overflow to the lives of our neighbors around us. And she was dumbfounded at why people would bring me a meal. We have this opportunity in our Afghan initiative right now as we're loving our new neighbors there as well. This is what it's about. Why? As we do this with one another and as it spills out from us to others, it is, as Paul says, for the glory of God. And that's, we long for him to receive glory and to be exalted, don't we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love in your son. And we cry out to you as those in need of your grace and the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit outside of whom, and that features so much in this book in Romans, the Spirit does. Outside of the Spirit, Lord, we we can't. But we cry out to you that we would walk in step with the Holy Spirit in our lives, even today, even this week, and so be oriented to pleasing our neighbor and not ourselves, and to welcoming our brother or sister as you've welcomed us, Lord. For your glory, honor, and praise. Oh, we pray that you would be exalted through us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.